As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined today by Andy Gosler, Professor of Ethno-Ornithology at the University of Oxford and an ordained minister in the Church of England. He shares some of his fascinating story in this great new book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Andy, one of the things you said about Dawkins' writing was that it ironically made you begin to think about God, but you were also beginning to get dissatisfied. You've already touched on the fact that there were philosophical flaws. People Mm. later came to see that there were scientific flaws. I mean, what were some of those flaws that really struck you and that helped you to grow dissatisfied with his work and with some of the theories that he was proposing in his work? Yes. So... um... The, the the main flaw that I saw in the selfish gene, um, the philosophical flaw, was that the whole book is an argument for genetic determination. It, it It's saying, you know, you are what your genes made you and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, now, there are all sorts of um, problematic consequences of such a belief, such as moral responsibility can we be held responsible for what we do um if you know we can say oh i'm sorry i've got a gene that made me kill this person or rob marks and spencer's or what you know whatever um uh so that that that's that's a problem that comes from that but that's not flaw in itself. The flaw is that having constructed this great argument for genetic determinism, the last page or so says, but it doesn't have to be like this. We can choose, we can choose to defy the tyranny of our genes and be nice to one another. One another. Um, well, apart from the fact that that is patently true, uh, it totally undermines the rest of his book. Um, where does that come from? Are, oh, so are you saying we've got a gene for being nice to each other? Uh, in which case, uh, we're not defying the tyranny of our genes. We're just doing what our gene for being nice is telling, you know, it, 
it smuggles in there, you know, smoke and mirrors, something, something that is just totally contradicting the rest of the book, but possibly the only bit of the selfish gene that is actually true. <laughs> that is actually correct that yeah we can choose to be nice to each other i guess as well a lot of his work you, you've pointed out various points of contradiction in his work you, you talk a little bit about that in, in the book coming to faith through dawkins but you also talk about in many ways his limitations on the way he talks about natural selection and mm. what i'd love to know is why do you think that natural selection particularly the way that dawkins defines it is not the whole answer in your opinion when it comes to actually working out the origins of life yes so i mean the 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 problem with if if i can go back to darwin mm. there's a there's a tension there's a conflict actually in the origin of species, which I became aware of at school. I, I thought, actually, I, I'm not sure that the process that he describes gives me the patterns that he describes. So the patterns that he describes are of the, which, which come, for example, from his uh, belief that there were different species of, of finches on different islands in the Galapagos. That turns out to be problematic itself but that was the idea um that, that you have different species in different places and that's what we call allopatric speciation and it and it reflects a local adaptation to local conditions but the process that he describes which is necessarily one of sympatric speciation because it involves the competition between individuals um and that that competition drives uh, a splitting of 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 a population uh, to become two separate species. Now, if I'm on an island a thousand miles off the coast, I cannot be in competition with, you know, a, a bird a thousand miles away. Um, so, how does local adaptation arise from this competitive competition driven model we now know we now know that there are um physiological processes and we know this from molecular biology and we know this from the very science that richard dawkins implored us to do uh, 40 odd years ago look at the genes look at the genes and you'll find it. and of course people can now look at the genes they can you know, map a genome in 20 minutes or something, whereas it couldn't do it at all in 1976. And what they've discovered and, and a whole new science of the study of how genomes are actually structured, genomics, teaches us that, that actually, and the, and the physiology, the, the biology of epigenetics, whereby organisms switch genes on and off in response to what they need they adapt themselves to their environment right um and then down the line there are other mechanisms that okay if this gene's been switched on for you know seven generations or something then i'm going to move it somewhere in the genome where i can access it more more readily or vice versa if that that's been switched off we'll well sort of move move that and that's the science of genomics is is how organisms actually move chunks of dna around that's the that's the big story of modern biology 
it's it's that actually these adaptations these these so-called mutations so any change in the genome is regarded as a mutation uh comes about by this genetic engineering this cellular genetic engineering by the organism itself and and that is the main process of adaptation how evolution happens and then yeah there may be some selection um but the problem with selection being the whole argument is that it's incredibly wasteful you know um if if a, the argument was that okay so you'd get a gene um arising by a totally random process of errors basically um and that if you then had strong selection that gene would go to fixation well for that to happen in a small population okay but we now know it happens in large populations um and it and the and the old mechanisms that were worked out and and proposed in the 1920s and 30s are just not tenable for explaining the rapid evolution that we see uh today whereas this new process of organisms adapting themselves with or without selection um is more dynamic it's more responsive it's less wasteful you can have it in multiple individuals you could have it in every individual in a population at the same time right you don't need massive selection for a gene to go to to fixation and of course it explains the patterns that charles darwin described so he was right that that was evidence for evolution but it was evidence for a kind of lamarckian evolution which incidentally he accepted it was the neo darwinists who said no 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 that's rubbish and they did some really crass really crass experiments involving mice uh that they they claimed proved that lamarck was wrong um and uh you know the rest is here history now for 150 years and this is where it can start to get a bit personal but for 150 years we were we were taught uh categorically the darwinian and the neo darwinian model of evolution that's how it happens and uh you know live with it and of course richard dawkins um has banged that neo darwinist drum very loudly but it's actually wrong scientifically you're listening to unapologetic from premier unbelievable Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. 
Well, I suppose there's one thing, as you say there, talking about the limitations and, you know, perhaps there's truth to various things, but actually the limitations of the neo-Darwinian model. But that's one thing. But I know one of the things you talk about as well is it, not just its limitations, but actually the dangers of a neo-Darwinian framework when you sort of push it to some of its logical conclusions. I mean, would you say yes. just a little bit about that as well? Yes. And that's what I was alluding to when I said it starts to get a bit uh, personal because the neo-Darwinists, um, they, they believed then that the genetic change was random. And it was only after they, they, uh, um, uh, kind of rediscovered or discovered, uh, Mendel's work, um, that the, the science of genetics sort of originated. So the neo-Darwinists, their contribution was to bolt the new genetics. It's very old fashioned genetics now, you know, um, or very limited in its understanding, of course. Um, but to bolt the, the genetics of the 1920s and 30s onto Darwin's, uh, framing of evolution. Now, where it gets dangerous and where it gets personal, um, is that the Huxleys, who were great sort of proponents of this from Thomas Henry Huxley on to, to Julian Huxley, who in 1942 wrote a book called Evolution, the New Synthesis. What came out of that was a political Darwinism that argued that actually we should be doing the selection and we shouldn't just be selecting, you know, breeds of cats and dogs and horses and, and, and Buddleia. You know, we, we, we should be exercising natural selection on or artificial selection on humans. And so the science of so-called science of eugenics originated. Now, Julian Huxley was a staunch advocate of eugenics. Um, if you look on YouTube, uh, you can find a, a, a film that, that he made, that he narrated, um, I think in the 1930s about eugenics. And it is spine chilling, some of the things that he says. Now, as as a, as a Jewish person, I grew up with knowledge of the Holocaust. I was born in 1958, so, you know, 15 years, not even 15 years after the end of the war. Um, my parents didn't talk about it very much because it was very painful, but, but I learned later that half the Gosler family, all these cousins of mine in the Netherlands, had been murdered by the Nazis in 1942. And the Holocaust, um, you know, evolutionary biologists might, as, as they did when I got into biology, might like to distance themselves from those things. I mean, I was told as a, as a student, oh yeah, do read, read, um, Darwin's The Descent of Man, but, but, but don't read the, the chunk, the stuff about, um, uh, the evolution of humans. Just read the sexual selection part. That, that's a, because it's a bit racist. Well, yeah, it is a bit racist. I mean, it, it, it basically comes out of the imperialism and the colonialism, uh, of the 19th century British Empire, which was good in parts, the British Empire, but, but not these are elements of it, not the racism. Um, and, 
and the Holocaust was the was eugenics. It it almost certainly wouldn't have happened without um, without the neo Darwinists. I won't say without Darwin because um, I, I I always consider Darwin as an innocent in this. He was a naturalist. And he loved nature and he just wanted to know what was going on. And the idea that other people would take his ideas and use it for political ends, um, I, I think would have mortified him really. Um, but this is, as I say, where it gets personal. And so when I read Richard Dawkins saying, well, you know, um, well, that's tough. I'm sorry you don't like the way that nature operates, but it is the way nature operates. Then when we discover that actually it's not how nature operates, um, and you are just banging the same racist, eugenicist, uh, drum, and your atheism just comes out of that, um, and because you think that evolution is just driven by competition rather than the need to adapt, um, you, you've constructed a, a theology that, well, if, if competition drives life, then the God who created life it can't be the God of the Bible. But as I say, um, competition doesn't drive life. It drives empires. But it's not what underpins biology. So how do we tell a better story? How do we correct that narrative that is so ingrained, not only in the academy, but has definitely infiltrated into, you know, the, the normal sphere of influence that everyone is kind of believing? I, I, I think we come at it as, as, as I think we, we get a sense from uh, the book, I'll wave that, uh, that that we come at it from multiple angles um we there there is a better story being told in biology and i think it's important that 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 comes out the rather than competition what we see as ecologists as physiologists as as even you know cell biologists is the cooperation within nature um right from the the uh perception that um subcellular parts you know organelles like mitochondria and chloroplasts in plants were probably independent organisms that that realized if you like inverted commas uh that actually they'd have a better uh, a better existence uh, more sustainable uh, if they lived within a, a larger cell and and there was uh, the cooperation um, from that to uh, the fungal the mycorrhizal associations with plants that the vast majority of flowering plants you know over 99 percent of flowering plants uh, need an association with fungi with their roots um, to increase the surface area. They feed the fungus. The fungus gives them a larger surface area so that their, their roots operate and even allows them, uh, possibly, possibly, the jury's out slightly on this, the so-called wood wide web, but uh, some communication between 
between trees and between plants through their their fungi maybe um but that intense cooperation and again you see it with uh pollinators and with seed dispersers you know the 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 birds that you know eat, eat fruit so you can take a a neo-darwinian reductionist perception and you can say oh will the bee pollinating the flower well it's just using the flower you know it's not interested in pollination probably isn't uh it's only interested in the nectar and the plant is only interested in you know getting its pollen dispersed um and it's in the interests of the plant uh that those bees are specialists because you don't want your pollen wasted on other species of trees you know so that that sort of generates specialization but specialization turns out to be more efficient in many ways anyway um but that intense cooperation, you can look at it and say, oh, they're just using each other. Or you can step out and say, oh, but this is a mutualism. This is a mutual dependency between these two organisms that actually they couldn't function without the other. Um, similarly, fruit dispersal by birds. Uh, you can say the bird's just using the tree. Yeah, sure, it is. Yeah, and it's going to nest in it, and that's fine. Um, but actually there's a mutual dependency between them and the more specialized they get in terms of their diet and their dependent, then the, the more dependent they are on each other. Now, what is mutual dependency if it's not love? Is that not another way of thinking of love? I, I think of my own marriage and I, I could construe that as a mutual dependency. Um, and so I, I see that as running right the way through nature and and up to uh Gaia the extraordinary um and and I think pretty well proven um Gaian mechanisms that maintain a stable climate if we will but let it <laughs> um you know so that's a different story and and actually to paraphrase Darwin in in his last paragraph, his famous last paragraph, he said there is a grandeur in this view of life. Um, but I think there there is a grandeur in this view of life. There's a greater grandeur in this view of life when you recognize that the tangled bank that he described operates more through mutual dependencies, cooperations than through competition. Um, and that that is generating diversity. And one of the examples you use is of the honey guide. Would you say a little bit about that? Because it's such a beautiful example of exactly what you were talking about just there, Andy. Well, yes. The, the, so the honey guide is uh, um, the greater honey guide is an African species. It, it's uh, found in many, many countries, but it has a, a mutualism with humans and it does seem to be specifically with humans. So, um, it has a number of behaviors which are specifically for guiding humans to um, bees nests um, and uh, and when when people find the the bees nests because they then smoke and this is why why humans rather than other animals is that humans have mastered fire and they can make smoke to sort of tranquilize the the bees and they can break open the, the nest and they'll leave a bit of the honeycomb for the honey guide. So that's a that's a little thank you. Um, 
and and uh, and this dependency may go back thousands of years uh, almost certainly does go back many thousands of years and one just wonders um when it evolved how it evolved the greater honey guide seems to have another a, a number of other adaptations physical anatomical or morphological adaptations for um resisting bee sting for example um and we just you just wonder whether this was a co-adaptation um that uh humans discovering fire whenever we did or proto-humans whatever um you know led led to uh, the development of of this this guiding behavior and uh when uh, how how it kind of works is that when somebody wants to be guided um they use a particular call or whistle or click or or whatever to attract the honey guide's attention and then it gives various calls and behaviors but it can work the other way around the honey guide can decide right i want some honey and can find someone to to uh to lead um and of course there's a whole culture around this there's a there's a sort of a multi-species culture around this there's the culture of the bird leading the humans but also the the culture of the humans knowing how to interact um with the bird and and folklore such as um in a number of uh cultures that if you don't leave the honeycomb for the honey guide uh the next time it's going to lead you to a lion so you know so there's a moral there's a moral twist to this you know um uh and and there always is is a sort of moral something behind uh mutual dependencies you know you've got to honor that relationship if you um you know if you betray that relationship um then there's a problem as 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 politicians often find out <laughs> As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.